If you have uh, your Bible with you, I'll invite you to turn to the book of 2 Peter. We're going to be looking at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10b, so the second half of verse 10, all the way to the end of the chapter through verse 22. 2 Peter chapter 2, 10b through 22, and as always, I forgot to look up in the chair Bible what page that's on, so anybody got that? Oh, it's probably 1078 or something like that, right? Oh, 1019. Okay, 1019. All right, so scratch 1078, 1019 if you're using the, uh, the chair Bibles, okay? So anyways, we begin this morning. I, I need to tell you, I have a confession. I'm addicted to pawn. You heard me right, P-A-W-N, pawn, or maybe more accurately, the TV show Pawn Stars, okay? Now, you know, here's the, here's the deal. It's about a pawn shop in Las Vegas. I know it sounds boring, but, oh, man, it hooks you, and it draws you in. And, and so, and, of course, I guess they probably avoid showing us the person who's got a, you know, wants to pawn their flat screen TV or their wedding ring, but it's always the people bringing in, oh, I bought this at a yard sale, or, oh, I found this in my grandmother's attic. And, and so here's what, to me, is so intriguing about the show, why I say I'm addicted to the TV show Pawn Stars, people are always bringing in stuff that is unique and historical and maybe super, super valuable, or maybe it's a fake. Okay, so somebody will bring in this antique firearm. Oh, this was, you know, the original, you know, Colt uh, revolver, or this was, or, or, or maybe um, a, uh, a first edition signed by you know, Ernest Hemingway, or maybe it's, it's FDR's, I don't know, personal cigarette holder. I don't know, whatever. You know, they're bringing in something that, that just the, the person bringing it in thinks they've found the holy grail of collectible items. And here's what I've learned by watching this show. Whether it's a super rare collectible coin or an antique firearm or, or a a piece of memorabilia connected to a famous person, people are always trying to fake that stuff. They're always trying to fake it. So they'll take a coin that might be semi-valuable, but alter it in some way so it becomes that super valuable holy grail of collectible coins. And here's also what I've learned. People fake them because they're greedy, right? They want more money than this item is worth. So they want to trick people, entice people to pay more than it's worth um, because of greed. But then also, people are gullible about this stuff. People don't check the facts. They, somebody says, hey, look, I've got this, you know, I've got this coin. See this here, this little mark right here? That makes it worth $10,000. But you know what? I'll give it to you for five. Here you go. And then they bring it to the pawn shop and find out that person faked it. Why, why are they so gullible? Because they also want the holy grail of collectibles. They want to believe the lie that someone's telling them because they're also greedy for gain and for the uh, fame and pleasure of having the super collectible item. So that's one of the things that I've learned, I think, from uh, watching to, from my addiction to Pawn or Pawn Stars, the TV show. Right. Now, how does that relate at all to the text Today, Believe me, it does, because in the text um, today, we are going to see that there are those who want to, motivated by greed and, and just being simply devious, want gain. They, and, and they're selling 
something fake to people who want so bad this falsehood to be true that they embrace it without really checking the facts, checking to see if this is true or false, and they just give themselves to it. So in, in a text today, Peter is continuing to talk about those false teachers that we talked about last week in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10a. He, he continues to talk about them today, again, exposing their sin and their deviousness and reminding us of the judgment that they will experience. And really the main point of the text this morning is this. God will pass final judgment upon those who pervert the gospel. These false teachers are perverting the gospel. They are selling a perverted, fake, false gospel. And there are those who, blinded by their own greed or desire, believe it, accept it, internalize it, embrace this false gospel. And, and Peter in detail and very graphic language, reminds us what awaits those who embrace, who teach and embrace a false gospel. You see, Peter is writing to people who doubt the reality of and disregard the judgment of God. And so therefore, they, they, they lead lives of faithless and ungodly living. That is who Peter was writing about and, and, and really in some ways too, or at least to guard against that. And, you know, the same thing is true in our day. There are many who doubt the reality and have disregard for the judgment of God, which leads to faithless and ungodly living. So the text written to the people in Peter's day certainly is relevant to us in our day because we see and experience many of the same things. So let's read together the text this morning, beginning in chapter 2, verse 10, the second half, B, on through the end of the chapter. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. 
For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. As we said already, Peter continues his warning of judgment of the false, particularly the false teachers, but also those who are living falsely. So the false, either teaching or living. And, and remember we talked about last week, you know, you're, you're, you're teaching something. We're always teaching something. Simply by the way we live, we teach something. And, and those of you who are parents know this, right? You know that your children watch you and follow your example. And whether you intend to or not, you're teaching your children something. Well, so we all are teaching something by the way we live. So if we're living falsely, we become false teachers. Peter continues his warning of judgment of the false teachers and those who are false in their living. Peter's goal is clarity of the gospel and godly living. These two realities go hand in hand. Clarity of the gospel and godly living. I think we'll see today in our text the judgment of the arrogant. We will also see the judgment of the adulterous and greedy. We will see the judgment of the devious, the judgment of those who pervert the gospel, and then some application about the glorious gospel. Now, man, do you notice the theme there? Judgment. I've got to be honest, man, I have struggled with this text. I've probably struggled with this sermon and this text more than any text and sermon in a long time. Uh, man, especially, you know, we talked about judgment last week because the text last week talked about judgment. And now it seems like instead of getting a break and easing up on the judgment, man, Peter's putting the pedal to the metal and we're just charging forward with more judgment, judgment, judgment. But we've got to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God, right? So, so, so we're going to push forward this week and look at all of these judgments. And we're going to see some redemptive elements in this text as well about the glorious gospel of Christ. But first, the judgment of the arrogant. We see that in verses 10b through 13. The judgment of the arrogant. We see that these false teachers are, as the text says, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. You know, this um, bold and willful blasphemy of the glorious ones. You know, um, actually there is some debate among commentators and Bible scholars exactly what Peter's referring to. You know, I, um, I, I definitely have uh, a position on that. I'm going to go ahead and present mine, okay? But I just want you to know that there are some other uh, other ideas about exactly what he's talking about. Um, I, I really think what uh, Peter is talking about, and this is because of some, some really close parallels to the book of Jude, 
okay, where glorious ones are, are, are actually a, a reference to uh, fallen angels, okay, demons, fallen angels. And so uh, I, I think that's what Peter's talking about here. I think he's saying, okay, these false teachers, here's how arrogant they are. They proclaim bold blasphemies against these demonic powers, completely dismissing them in their own power and strength they are rebuking these demonic powers. And Peter says, here's how arrogant that is. Angels, good angels, not fallen angels, but angels of heaven. These angels who are greater in might and power than the false teachers and the demonic forces, the fallen angels themselves, they don't pronounce a blasphemous judgment. They leave that to God the Father. And, and that's the point of Jude when, when Jude is talking about these that blaspheme the glorious ones and how even the angels of heaven wouldn't pronounce a blasphemous judgment against a fallen angel, a demon, but would just say the Lord rebuke you. They would leave the judgment of fallen angels to God, but yet these false teachers take that upon themselves and they don't leave the judgment of fallen angels to God, but they take it on themselves and think that they, in their arrogance, have the strength and power to rebuke these fallen angels. That is one aspect of their arrogance. Um, another is that they function on instinct in ignorant blasphemy. In other words, first of all, they make blasphemous comments, judgments about things that they are ignorant of. So they pretend they know something when they don't. They speak of what they do not know, and they boldly, willfully blaspheme. So it's not just speaking about what they don't know, but they, they blaspheme what they don't know. They make judgments about what they don't know. They speak confidently but falsely about what they do not know. And they don't even put forth any time or effort to educate themselves about what they don't know. They just go on instinct. They're just like, I got this. I know this. My, my feelings tell me that this is true. So I will just speak it. I will just say it because it seems right to me. Arrogant. Arrogant in their blasphemous words. And then their arrogance is further displayed in the fact that they revel or they take great delight in both their unhidden sin and their deception. Look again at what it says there in verse uh, 12 and following. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Then verse 13, suffering wrong as, they wage, as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Revel, in other words, they take great delight. They take great delight in their Sin committed in the daytime. Okay, so those things that ought to be hidden, that sin that ought to be hidden, they boldly commit it in the daytime and they take great delight in their public sin, their unhidden sin. There's that sin that, you know, we think of as hidden and kind of in the dark and, 
and, and at night. But these guys, they just do it all and take great, great delight in it publicly, but then also in their deceptions because it says, it says, while they feast with you, these false teachers put on the air of Christianity. They, they put on the cloak of Christianity, though, though they, the, their hearts tell a completely different story. They represent themselves as Christians, as believers, so much so that they go to feasts. And the feast in view here is most likely the Lord's Supper. They eat and drink judgment upon themselves because they are present with the church participating in and celebrating the Lord's Supper. And, and they revel, they take great delight in this deception. The fact that they are deceiving other believers, true believers. The fact that they are deceiving the church in proclaiming and acting like Christians. They revel, they take great delight in deceiving God's people. Again, arrogance. Their arrogance, the arrogance of the false teachers is on display. Well, <clears throat> their judgment is pronounced. Look at what the text says. First of all, they are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. They will will also be destroyed in their destruction. So they will be destroyed in their destruction. They will suffer wrong as a wage okay, for, for their wrongdoing. Destruction and harm. That is the judgment that is pronounced against these false teachers filled with arrogance. Those who are blots and blemishes on the church because they are claiming to be part of the church and they become this this blemish, this blot, this spot, this stain on the church. Not only do we see the judgment of the arrogant, but we also see in this text the judgment of the adulterous and greedy. We see that in verses 14 and 16. It says they have eyes full of adultery, and they are insatiable for sin. Okay, well, they have eyes full of adultery. Full. I think that's an important little word, full. That means that's about all they have eyes for. That's about all they can see. We, we are... We are it's implied, we're led to believe, we're instructed that these false teachers have eyes for adultery. They, they cannot look, these men cannot look upon a woman without being filled with lust for her. And it says they are insatiable for sin. It means they, they can't get enough of sin, and particularly this sin, the sin of sexual immorality, that's the sin that is implied um, in the language, that it's, they, they can't get enough of lustful, passion, sexual sin. They are perverts, deviants, who are consumed with passionate lust and sexual sin. That is their character. 
It's, it's, it's not that they have fleeting thoughts of, of, of lust or that they have, you know, engaged in some sexual immorality. They are consumed, insatiable, filled with, full of, characterized by, live a lifestyle of sexual sin, lusts, adulterous living, fornication. This characterizes their lives. And it's not just sexual sin, lust, but also greed. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice, restrained, restrained the prophet's madness. They are greedy not just for financial gain, but also for influential gain. First, they want to have influence over others. They are greedy to gain followers. That's why they entice others. That's why they hunt others. That word entice, it means to hunt. It, 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 it's the, the word is what the hunter does to draw an animal near so he can deliver the killing blow. <laughs> that, that's what the word means. It's, it's to draw near to deliver the killing blow. And that's what these False teachers long to do. They are insatiable for the sin, not only of sexual immorality, but also of influential gain, of hunting the weak so they can deliver the killing blow, so they can say, ah, these have followed us. These are following my example. I have these. These are mine. <coughs> Excuse me. But not only do they want that influential gain, there's also financial gain. The idea is that they also want to profit financially from this false teaching. So not only are they delivering a false message, not only are they themselves living falsely, not, they, they are hunting those who are weak to gain them as followers. Along the way, they're charging them. They're gaining financially from, from them for this privilege of, you know, basically believing a falsehood and putting themselves in danger of judgment. That, that's, that is what they do. The text says that they follow after Balaam. Okay? And, and you know the story of, of Balaam? You know, when uh, the children of Israel were uh, uh, going through Moab, then the leader of Moab, ba Balak, he, he wanted Balaam, this supposed prophet, to pronounce a curse on on Israel, on God's people. And and of course, Balak was going to pay Balaam to do this. Balaam was going to, going to benefit financially by proclaiming this curse, by laying this curse on Israel. And and so Balaam gets on his donkey and he's riding off to go deliver this curse. And an angel of the Lord blocks the way 
And here's the thing, Balaam, who's supposed to be this prophet and is supposed to be able to hear and discern things from God, can't see that there is this angel of the Lord set on stopping him. And if that means to take his life, then the angel's prepared to do that. But Balaam, the supposed prophet, can't even discern that God's telling him, don't do this, because he's so consumed with the payday he's going to get once he delivers this curse. But his donkey, his donkey sees the angel and is rightly afraid and tries to get out of the way, to go around. And, and Balaam's like, what's wrong with this stupid donkey? And he, he curses the donkey and he beats the donkey. And finally, God gives this donkey the gift of speech and the donkey rebukes Balaam tells him what's really going on and prevents his madness his really his destruction and Peter says these false teachers they're just like Balaam they love to because of their greed benefit financially so much so that they disregard the truth about God they disregard the word of the Lord for financial gain. Their judgment is pronounced. Verse 14. Accursed children. And by implication, madness. But accursed children. Their judgment is proclaimed. These false teachers are cursed by God. Man, that's weighty. That's heavy. You know what cursed by God means, right? It means the full wrath of God is upon them. Now, um, last week... Peter gave us some illustrations of ways in the past God has executed his judgment. And we, we saw it in the fallen angels being cast into hell, gloom and utter darkness. We saw it in the, the flood where except for Noah and his family and two of every animal, all the rest of all flesh the entire rest of the population of the earth was destroyed by a global flood. And we also saw Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities given over to sexual sin, consumed with sexual sin, destroyed by fire and brimstone from heaven, utter destroyed, wiped off the face of the earth. Those are some examples of what happens to those who are accursed by God and here the judgment upon these false teachers in their adulterous and greedy attitudes and behaviors is that they are accursed children they are cursed accursed by God well we've seen so far the judgment of the arrogant we've seen the judgment of the adulterous and greedy and now in verses 17 and 18 we'll look at the judgment of the devious Yes, the devious. These false teachers, not only are they arrogant, not only are they adulterous, not only are they greedy, but maybe, maybe, no, 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 that's not true. I was going to say maybe worst of all, but the, believe it or not, 
the worst is still to come. No, they are devious. They are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They are waterless springs and mists driven by wind. That's what it says in verse 17. Well, what is a waterless spring? It's a sham, right? A waterless spring is a sham. If you're going to a spring, what do you expect? Cold, clean, refreshing water, right? That's why you visit a spring, especially, you know, especially in a, you know, uh, the desert climate, okay? Like we, that, that Peter knows very well because much of his homeland, much of the land of Israel is going to be most of that part of the world is desert, right? We know it to be desert. And so you can imagine traveling through the desert and, and, and the heat of the sun and reflecting off all the sand and your throat getting dry and then pretty soon your lips cracking and then, and then not your throat not just being dry but your throat hurting, physical pain like somebody, you've been this thirsty, have you ever been that thirsty before where you're so thirsty it feels like something is sticking, like uh, you, know, you swallowed a knife, okay? And it's just sticking, stabbing your throat. And, man, there's an oasis. Looks like there's a spring up there. Man, you quicken your pace. Maybe even you start to run. Using the last of your energy, you get there. And it's dry. There's nothing there. Man, that's devious. That's a deception. That's a sham. And Peter says that's what these guys are. These false teachers are a sham, they're a deception, they're devious. They give the appearance of having something to give, but they have nothing because what they have is false, it's fake, it's untrue. It, it does not refresh, it does not cool, it does not soothe, it only brings more pain. That's what they have to offer. They are waterless springs, or, or they're mists driven by the wind. You know, because you see this, you see a cloud, dark clouds coming your way in a desert climate. What do you anticipate? Rain, glorious rain. It's going to rain. Make it rain over here. Right? Yeah. yeah, whatever. Okay, yeah. Water coming from the sky, refreshing, cooling, bringing life, right? Making the desert come alive. You've seen that special, that TV nature thing on whatever channel, Discovery, where, you know, here's the desert, but the rains come, life pops up everywhere, and, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's what you expect. But Peter says these guys are mists driven by the wind. It looks like rain and this just blows away and nothing happens. They're empty, worthless, not at all life-giving. You would expect them to be and they present themselves as being life-giving. But they bring absolutely nothing. Again, a deception, a sham. They are devious, and they hunt the weak through deception. Look at verse 18. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in air. Peter says these false teachers, they hunt the weak. They hunt those who are barely escaping the cares of this world. Who, who are barely, are just now 
coming out of the captivity of the world, the corruption of sin that is in this world. They're just coming out of that, and they target those. They hunt them, again, entice with loud boasts of folly. In other words, they proclaim foolishness, insanity, falsehood, but they do it loud. They, they, they boast about it loudly. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. I mean, are you convinced? Hey, I was loud. I said it with confidence, right? I'm 28 years old. I'm 28. 28 years. 28. Believe it? Suck it in my gut. 28. No. Okay, I said it loud. I said it with confidence. I was bold, but it was folly. I'm not 28. I'm not even 38. But I am not 48. That's what they do. They make loud boasts of foolishness, of falsehood, and they deceive those who are weak. They hunt them. They entice them with sensual passions and false words, and then they deliver the killing blow. That's what they do. They are devious and... Their judgment is pronounced. For them, verse 17, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. That's the judgment pronounced on those who are devious in their sin and in their false teaching and in their hunting of the weak. Now the worst has come. The judgment of those who pervert the gospel. Verses 19 through 21. Here's what the text says. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. What is the source of their perversion of the gospel? Well, first of all, it is that they proclaim freedom that is no freedom. They proclaim freedom, and here's the, here's the freedom they proclaim. Since there is no judgment, since Christ is not going to return... Since life goes on and on and we don't have to face a judgment, then a good Christian does whatever they want with their body. You are free to engage in whatever you want. If, if sensual pleasure is what you want, go get it. You deserve it. Enjoy it. Okay? Engage in every sexual escapade, perversion, fantasy that you want. 
because you have the freedom to do so. Or maybe, maybe it's maybe your stomach and food is what you love. Then eat up, eat it all, just eat it. Whatever you want, as much as you want, doesn't matter. Just enjoy it. Or perhaps it's money, possessions. Then by whatever means necessary, get all you can get and then enjoy it. They proclaim freedom. But what they proclaim is slavery. Because they themselves are enslaved to corruption. They're proclaiming freedom, but they can't be free of their own sin. They can't be free from their own corruption. And what they are selling as freedom is just enslavement. Because as the text says, whatever overcomes a person, to that they are enslaved. What they proclaim as freedom is really slavery. It is not a freedom. It's false freedom. And, and in that, in proclaiming slavery to be freedom, enslavement to sin and corruption as freedom, they are perverting the gospel. But their perversion of the gospel doesn't end with the false freedom they proclaim, but their very lives that are consumed with sin, characterized by sin. See, the, see a pattern there? They're characterized, enslaved to corruption and sin. That lifestyle perverts the gospel. They claim, they claim Christ, but they're not free from sin. They claim Christ, but they are still dead in their sin and in their trespasses. Do you see how they pervert the gospel? They say they, they are in Christ, but nothing about their lives indicates that they are in Christ. Because they have not been freed from sin. They continue in it. And, and, the, and, and the, we're not. And please don't misunderstand. It's not that they occasionally give in to arrogance. No, they are full of arrogance, unrepentant arrogance. And it's not that they just might occasionally have that lustful thought. No, their eyes are full of it. And it's not that they struggle with greed. And generosity, they have an insatiable desire. They're insatiable in their sin of greed and arrogance and lust and adultery. Their lives are characterized. They live a lifestyle of arrogance and greed and lust and adultery. And because of that, they pervert the gospel. Because they themselves do not belong to Christ and never have, but yet claim to be so, they pervert the gospel. The gospel they proclaim is not the true gospel. 
And, and here's the way we need to think about this, because I know that we could be tempted to say, okay, look, this text here is saying that they, they were once truly believers, and now they've walked away from that, and now their condition is worse than it was before. And I'll agree that their condition was worse than it was before. Because when you claim something that you don't have, you still will be held and judged for what you claim, though you never had it. And also, once we have some knowledge about Christ, but continue in rejecting Him, we become hardened to the gospel. It's like being inoculated, right? You know how how that works, right? You know, so if you're going to get, you know, if you're going to get a uh, an inoculation for, you know, what is it? I don't know, measles. Do, we, do they still do that? I don't even know if they still do that. I got, you know, I got a little thing on my arm, but I'm older than 38. Okay. Um, what they do is they just give you a little bit of the measles, right? You just get a little bit of it. Not enough to really make you get it, but enough that your body kind of knows how to fight it so you don't get it. And those who have this knowledge of Christ but continue in the hardness of heart to reject it and then maybe even to pervert it, so they can claim to have, that they claim to have it but really don't, they become sort of inoculated to the gospel. They, they, because to them, they don't even know what it is anymore. So their last state there is, is worse than the first. But here's how we need to think about this, this text. Think about it as the view from the ground. Because sometimes the scripture gives us this glorious view from the air. Or in other words, God's perspective. And, and we get that in verse 1. And I'm sorry, in chapter 1. We get that in chapter 1. Let's just let's revisit chapter 1 real quick. Let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 1 and get the, view, get the view from the air. God's view, God's perspective. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing to ours with ours by the righteousness of God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's the view from the air. That's when the Scripture gives this, this glorious perspective of God in His work in our lives. Do you see that? Those, those verses we read from chapter 1, it's all about God calling us righteous and making us righteous according to the purpose of His will and, and His effective calling in our lives. It's all about Him granting to us or by His divine Power, doing only what he himself can do, you know, granting to us everything needed for life and godliness. And him granting to us his precious and very great promises. And then if I could also just read one more section from chapter 1.
Sorry. Verse 10 and following. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter has already made it clear that salvation is a work of God. God does the work of saving. His call is effectual. It's effective. It accomplishes its purpose. And its purpose is enduring faith in Christ so that those who truly belong to Him will never fall. And there will be for them a way of entrance into His eternal kingdom. Guys, that is based on His divine power, His effectual calling, and His precious and very great promises that do not fail. We're not talking about, in verses 17 through 22, someone who has truly been converted and then walked away. No, what we're talking about is the one who gives the appearance of conversion, but really isn't. And then in their apostasy, they misrepresent and pervert the gospel. And what we read in verses 17 to 22 is the view from the ground. We've got the view from the air in chapter 1. Now we've got the view from the ground. And, and if you think about that, you'll understand. Um, I think it was as early as the French Revolution when armies started using hot air balloons for aerial reconnaissance. Okay, And so the guys that had the hot air balloons, guess what they did? They dominated on the battlefield. Do you know why? Because they could see everything their enemy was doing. They just needed a way to communicate from the ground, from the air to the ground, so they'd know what to do. They could see every maneuver of the enemy because they saw the whole battlefield in one picture, in one look. Now you can imagine what it looks like on the ground, right? All you see on the ground is what's right in front of you, right? And so all you know is the enemy that's right in front of you. You don't know the enemy that's to the side and to the other side or how, even how many of the enemy are in front of you. You just know what's right in front of you. That's the view from the ground. And this text, 17 to 22, gives us the view from the ground. Here's what it looks like to you and me. It looks like that person is a genuine believer, but now they're not. Okay, that's what it looks like, but that's the view from the ground. The view from the air is very different. That person is perverting the gospel because they claim to be in Christ when they are not and never were. Well, the judgment... For those who pervert the gospel is pronounced. And here it is. <laughs> they are still in their sin. What the wrath of God is still upon them. They are like a dog who returns to his vomit or a sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. 
they are still in their sin and all of the effects of sin is still upon them. The deadness, (laughs) their deadness in sin is still a reality. The depravity, corruption of sin is still a reality. And the wages of sin is still a reality in their lives. That's the judgment that is passed upon them. So how are we to think about this, this judgment? I mean, I don't know about you, but like I, I know there are times I struggle. I'm arrogant. I, I believe that some of my brothers could attest to little bit of my arrogance on the volleyball court just last night. I hope that they thought that was all in jest. Okay, in my heart, I know it's a different story that there was a part of me, there was a part of me that when I made those, you know, bold, uh, you know, whatever they were, I hope they weren't bold declarations of folly. Mm, okay, but, but there was a part of me that kind of wanted to believe those things about myself. You know, there was. So I know sometimes I struggle with arrogance. Do I face the judgment of the arrogant? You know, and I have, and not just in the distant past, but I have given a lustful look. I've struggled with lust of the eyes before and do and will probably, okay? And greed is a part of what's in my heart sometimes. My motives are mixed. Do I, do I face that same kind of judgment? How am I to think? How are we to think about these judgments? Well, I think first we take the opportunity for self-examination and guarding. When we hear these judgments upon these types of sin... There needs to be some self-examination. Is this sin in me? Now, it's, but here's the thing. There's a difference between falling to acts of sin and being characterized by sin. If all of my life is characterized by arrogance, if, all that, if, if I am filled with adultery and greed and insatiable for that, then yes, I do face those judgments. But, but if I struggle with acts of sin in these areas, then, and, and I'm convicted of that sin by God's Spirit when I commit those acts of sin, and if I am actively turning from that sin and turning to Christ in faith, repentance, if I am repentant, then that's a different story. But yet, there is a place for self-examination and then guarding against that kind of sin. That's part of what it means for God to be sanctifying us, for Him to be to be killing sin in us, is that we examine ourselves and see, is there any hint of this in me? Thank God it doesn't characterize my life. Thank God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that this doesn't characterize my life anymore. But yet, is it present at all? Because part of the way God kills that in me is 
me recognizing it and Him empowering me to turn from it. So yes, self-examination and guarding is appropriate. And then discipleship. That's a, In other words, teaching, challenging, exhorting one another in the faith is a necessity. We must be growing in our knowledge of God. We must be growing in our knowledge and knowing of God. Not just our knowledge about Him, but our knowing of Him. And we do that by teaching one another and sharing life with one another and exhorting one another and challenging one another and holding one another accountable. Who did the false teachers target? Who did they hunt? The weak, those who lacked knowledge. So parents, let us be faithful to teach our young children the truth of the gospel. And church, let us be faithful and diligent in discipling and teaching, exhorting one another in the truth of God's word and the doctrine of God and the truth of the gospel. And then rejoice in the gospel. Rejoice in the gospel. Rejoice that his calling is indeed effectual. That God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. Rejoice in that. Rejoice that that God by his divine power has granted to you and I everything. Everything we need for life and godliness that he has granted to us his precious and very great promises that is the basis for our salvation. The gospel is his precious and very great great promise that God who has created all and is holy and blameless has been sinned against by man, and man has separated himself from God by his sin and rebellion. But God, uh, for his glory and his love and compassion for man, sent Jesus, his one and only Son, to live a perfect life here on earth, leaving heaven, all of its glories, to be here on earth, living a perfect life, but yet being crucified, dying for sin, becoming sin for us being laid in a borrowed tomb and being raised to life and will soon return. This response, then responding to him in repentance and faith, that glorious truth of the gospel, rejoice in that. And then also proclaim it. Proclaim it to self. Proclaim the gospel to yourself. Make that a regular practice of your life. We never grow past the gospel. Have you ever heard that at Redeemer Church? Right? We say that all the time. Why do we say it all the time? Because it's true. We constantly proclaim the gospel to yourself. Then proclaim it to one another. We, We ought to be a family of God who gospels one another. Bring the gospel to bear in one another's lives. And then... Proclaim it to all. Proclaim the glorious gospel to all. 
It is the hope. It is the only hope we have, any have, of escaping judgment. It is the only sustaining power there is. Proclaim the gospel. Today in our text, we've seen the judgment of the arrogant. We've seen the judgment of the adulterous and the greedy. We've seen the judgment of the devious. We've seen the judgment of those who pervert the gospel. But we've learned to hope in the true gospel. We've learned to rejoice in the true gospel. Yes, we want to examine ourselves and guard ourselves, and we want to exhort and encourage ourselves and one another with the glorious gospel. We've learned to hope in the gospel. But we understand that God will pass final judgment upon all those who pervert the gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the truth of the gospel, the work that you have accomplished in Christ. God, we are grateful that we have this this hope that you've called us to. God, we, we are grateful that we know what is your inheritance in the saints. God, we rejoice in the immeasurable greatness of your power that's overcome sin that you've set forth in Christ. We rejoice in these things and, and are grateful. God, I, I pray that we will continuously rejoice, continuously proclaim, continuously hope in this great and glorious gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.